Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Don't believe or shout, Daniel. Don't believe or shout, Daniel. Don't tell you shout, Daniel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of Finneran's Wake. I'm joined this evening by the pop historian, the historian about whom you and all your historically curious friends are sure to be talking. Mr. Pop Historian, hello. How are you this evening? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Really looking forward to it. It's an honor and a privilege, my friend. So I will include links to your social media sites and your YouTube page in the show notes below. But right off the bat, I'll ask for you, from you a little bit of biographical information, a little bit of background. Why is it that you decided to create this channel, The Pop Historian, and pursue these interesting topics about which uh, we'll talk at some length? Yeah, so the big reason I've wanted to do it is I've always had an absolute passion for history. Um, and it's no matter really what I've done with life, it's always kind of migrated back towards that. Uh, and one thing that I've really noticed over the years is that there's a lot of people out there who really love learning, who have just an absolute passion for it, but um, they get really discouraged by it the second that it goes into a classroom. And it's because especially with history, it's a lot of dates and names and great battles. And it's a lot less of the uh, underlying effects and how it really weighs into our life today and really the way that people lived in the past. And that's what I hope to achieve uh, through my uh, content. So do you feel as though there are some inadequacies in the current educational system, especially as pertains to the instruction of history? I don't know of a single person I've talked to who doesn't feel that there's some sort of inadequacy uh, with education. Either they're the I guess the hands-on stuff isn't being taught as much would definitely be a big one. Um, you know, how many people can say outside of a scheduled field trip once a year, maybe that they go to say a museum and they're really shown by the experts. Like this is, th these are the artifacts that we've come from or that have been in the past. And uh, the, this is really why it's important. Um, there's a lot less of uh this is why these things should be taught and more of these are just the facts. You need to know this for your test. So as a child, perhaps growing up in the educational system in which you were brought up, did you have some of those experiences? Were you able to go into these immersive um, scenarios in a museum, for instance, or to a historical site? Um, and were you particularly moved by that to pursue this? Yeah, so that's actually a great question. So I was actually homeschooled until I was in sixth grade, um, and there's a pretty there's a pretty stark change from homeschooling, and I you know was going to private school at the time. There's a pretty major change between those two. Um, one of them was the homeschooling was a lot more. Uh, let's try to get involved in it. Let's try to see um, the details behind the way these things work. There was a lot of hands-on stuff. There was a lot of let's. Um, I remember we celebrated Passover three years in a row and we're not Jewish. And it was because we had Jewish friends and we were trying to learn about the different cultures. Um, I remember there was this, uh, it was the Higgins Armory Museum in Worcester. And it was this arms and armor museum that this private collector had built up for like a century, like his whole adult life. Um, and when he died, he donated it all to a museum and it was all about like the middle ages. So that was, that was one of my favorite places. Eventually I got bored of it. I went so many times that I could just rattle off about every single piece there. Um, so it was a lot of hands-on stuff and it was a lot of uh, trying to learn how these different pieces interconnected because you get one piece that's say the jumping off point. It might be um, nowadays, let's say it's a video game. Let's say it's Assassin's Creed. You know, if, if and I, I, we, I wasn't playing Assassin's Creed back then, um, hadn't come out yet. But let's say it was nowadays, you'd have that and you'd say, well, let's learn about Italy. And then let's learn about the architecture of Italy. And then you'd kind of use that as a segue to these different topics. Um, I found that when sitting down to learn in a formal academic study or setting, 
it can get pretty boring, especially if there's no passion or interest about the topic, or if the um, educator is not especially in passion, um, or has a very specific view of how you should learn. Um, and if you don't connect with that, um, it can be a it can be a bit of a slog. Or you can, on the flip side, you can be the only person participating, and then it's just like this weird conversation with you and somebody who's like in their mid forties. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think that's a great way to learn either. Yeah. So first I have to comment on the cruelty of, uh, exposing you to Passover of all the Jewish holidays, the one during which you are prohibited from eating any bread. <laughs> what did you, in, did you, in, did you observe, uh, Passover in the, in the strict way? Oh gosh, this was so long ago. I remember we did a ceramics class where we learned how to make the, the plates with the 12 divots. And then we painted them and then we put our names in them. And then we took them over to Passover at a synagogue. And uh, I, we went through the whole ceremony and everything. Oh, I, I don't think it was a synagogue. I think it was a universal church, excuse me. So they, uh, so they observed all holidays. Um, and, uh, I remember we, we, we had to take our plates and I can't remember what they were called, what the official name was. Um, I don't remember how strict we were. I, I know that we weren't a, um, we weren't a heavy, heavily religious family. Yeah. Yeah. Having observed many, many a Passover in my youth, I can tell you that is not the holiday, um, in which I would want to be instructed as I approach Judaism. Hanukkah is the one that you want eight days of uh, of presents right around christmas time <laughs> yeah i remember i remember we got we got, actually did hanukkah one year and we had dreidels and i didn't realize what they were so i i just had like all these different dreidels like around the house and um i i, I just remember it being some sort of a betting game and that's it essentially yeah you're betting for geld and you and you learn four letters of the hebrew alphabet so it's it's instructive and can be lucrative, quite lucrative. If you, Not for me. If you play your role right. <laughs> so, and so there were some fascinating uh, things of which you made mention there. The first thing I want to touch on is, is the differentiation between homeschooling and, and public schooling or private schooling uh, today, especially after the pandemic uh, and the lockdowns uh, that many states imposed. Uh, we, we've seen and continue to see a, a, a movement away from the public and private school settings to the homeschool setting. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Do you think that you were more uh, thoroughly educated in the homeschool setting as opposed to the private or public school setting to which you then transitioned at, at the age of probably 13 or 14? I don't want to say that necessarily one is better or worse because I think there are a lot of people who do succeed very well in the formal school setting. Um, I want to say that for me, I... Um, have always been the kind of person where if I don't find interest in something, I really have a hard time paying attention to it. Uh, attention is, or interest especially, is, is kind of paramount for me. Um, the advantage in that case for homeschooling and even some sort of an active education, even if it wasn't homeschooling, would be that I can develop that interest, that I can really get my hands in it and see how those applications would work in a, in a, in a broader sense. Um, learn more than just, like I was mentioning, the facts and the figures and the dates and the names. You know, I think that's one of the big reasons why um, I've always been a big fan of documentaries is because you can uh, really pick and choose them rather than uh, having to sit through the boring stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds as though you, you've been influenced by two things especially. Well, many things, but two things uh, of which you made note, and that is documentaries, about which we'll talk a little bit more, and, and video games. I find the fact that you're interested in video games especially interesting, um, and in relation to history and your study of history, I think that's a very fruitful area of conversation. So. You mentioned Assassin's Creed. Now I have to admit, I've never, I've, I've, I may have played Assassin's Creed, but I, but I didn't have the the system. You know, I had a PlayStation Two, and I don't think anything beyond. I was that. an Xbox guy. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> but, but 
But beyond PlayStation 2, it was Game Boy Color for me and then PlayStation 2. So I was quite deprived of, of the gaming systems as I came of age. So I didn't have a lot of experience with Assassin's Creed, but I do remember watching some friends play it, and I was completely enamored of it. And this was early in its in its creation. I'm sure at this point it's probably very sophisticated and, and even more um, enjoyable as a game. But I remember exactly what you described. There were these figures, historical figures, the Medici and, and, and um, uh, the Borgias in Italy uh, actually telling a historical tale to some extent, I'm not sure exactly how accurate it was, but you could you could rest assured that the developers of these games were quite astute and tried to their utmost, I'm sure, to to include a lot of true historical information. Now, I I know that there's Call of Duty, and you're and you're playing in uh, in or playing you're fighting over in Europe during World War II and probably during World War One. I'm sure they have a lot of iterations of these games. I, for one, I remember playing on the computer. Maybe you'll know this name, Wolfenstein. <laughs> Have you ever played never, that game? Never got the chance. It, it's I, it, it's it's your run of the mill uh, shooting. I, oh, I'm familiar with it. I just never yeah. got the chance. <laughs> My father and I used to play it on our computer. I mean, pixelated, and it was you know with a mouse and a keyboard, no controller. But it was such fun, and I just remember you know you're being attacked by Nazis, and you you basically just have to kill all of them. Um, but but maybe you could speak to that a little bit more. Uh, the the link between video games, at which a lot of people look down as being kind of low and boyish, and and history, and maybe how the latter can I'm sorry how the former can foster an appreciation of the latter. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah. Actually, I can a little bit. Um, so the first thing I'd like to make note of is that this idea that video games are in fact boyish because there's still that kind of understanding of them as being such. I think no small part of that is because for a very long period of time, up until maybe the past 10 years, video games were targeted almost exclusively towards children. Um, and you see that going all the way back to the 70s, 80s, 90s with, uh, you know, Mortal Kombat was a big one where there was it was this hyper violent game at the time you know um and it was it was targeted towards children so that was the big that was the big driving force against it i think that what we've seen as those children have grown up a newfound appreciation of uh the video game as a form of art much in the same way that we might see movies as a as an art form now i think the big difference is um a lot of people don't have the time to play a lot of video games um, even narrative-driven ones that might only take an hour. And those that fall in that more of the narrative realm are even, you'd consider them more like um, the artsy-fartsy artsy style. You know, it's the, it's comparable to the movies that you have to go to, like, the, uh, the small theater to go into because they only have seven showings. Um, so that's, I think, one of the big things that we've kind of moved a lot away from um, at least in uh, certain circles, certain cultural and social circles. What we have seen, though, is a massive boom of video games as a form. It's like a stepping stone to kind of get get that first interest into whatever it be. And, and I'm just speaking about history here because that's my realm of expertise. Um, you could talk about mathematics, like with Kerbal Space Program, which is uh, you're supposed to get your rocket to Mars, and it uses a lot of um, real-world mathematics in the same way that real rocket engineers would use. Um, but with history, you have these really labors of love, as I like to call them, um, where these people who had an absolute love of history said, let's try to bring um, fighting in Rome to life, and then let's kind of use that as a jumping off point to kind of go into deeper, try to understand maybe politics, and let's try to implement this political system in ancient Rome. Um, with Assassin's Creed, I, I know they had a, in quite a few of them, they have walking tours that you can do, where you can set your character to go on this tour, and then he'll walk around or he'll be transported to, um, I think one of the newest ones takes place in uh, Egypt. I haven't played it, unfortunately, but you get to go and your character can go see the pyramids and there's like a guided tour all around the, these areas. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really beautiful way to kind of jump off and to get people really excited about history. I think it's really achieving what the, 
what a lot of you like the problematic piece in school where you know again the dates the names and all that stuff and taking it more towards the documentary style it's taking you out of the classroom and putting you into a situation where you're engaged because video games are naturally engaging um that's by their nature i think nobody likes a boring video game um but people are going to really flock to those that um really suit their interests yeah and i can imagine the time not far from the present hour when these video games become completely immersive you you don your virtual reality goggles and now you're you're standing at the pier the base of the pyramids at giza and you're looking up at the sphinx while you're swinging around your sword or whatever it is at that at that era whatever you're wielding at that era that time um and and both like you said exerting yourself kind of um, maybe physically in some ways in the virtual reality way but also um educationally and i think that's fascinating and i've never really considered video games in that way um and i think it was assassin's creed and, and maybe your description of it especially that's led me to to that recognition um so that could be a very important way to get especially young men because I would think the majority of players, I could be wrong, but the majority of players on Assassin's Creed are, prob are probably younger men or millennial men or, or and younger, I would it's, think. It's a, it's a violent video game. I, I think that's their target audience. So that's probably not wrong of me to surmise. So so I think it's a great entree to, to historical information, even if you're getting it secondhand, even if it's through the back door, so to speak. You're, you're getting an appreciation for these things, Egypt, Rome, um, all these important um historical cities and 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 names probably they're uh, like if you're just hearing the name of of whomever it might be like the borgias the the italian uh, aristocrats then that just maybe becomes part of your vernacular you're talking about that as you're talking about the game and and it that's i think that's really useful yeah it's actually the fact that you brought up the the borgias specifically is one thing that I've noticed continuously in, in the, I want to say it's probably been almost 10 years now that it was Assassin's Creed 2 when that really started. Um, there's been a lot of people that are that are talking about them specifically, kind of bringing them back into, I want to say the, the, the mainstream understanding of, of history as one of the great tales. Um, when people are hearing about things and when people have the opportunity to see it, uh, then if it interests them, and I mean, history's very interesting if presented correctly. I mean, it's all stories that are sometimes larger than life. Um, then people dive so much deeper into that. Uh, I think the one thing that should be kept in mind, especially when we talk about something like uh, the possibility of VR in the future, which is I know one of the things that uh, Facebook's trying to do with their meta um, program is that these things are more like museums and they also have, I don't want to say, um, there's always a person, there's always a person writing this history. And that person is always going to have a certain point of view, or a certain set of beliefs that are going to influence how they um, write about history and how they speak about history. And in this case, how they would narrate a historical um, tour. Uh, for a museum, that might be the museum curator, and then maybe a tour guide. Um, and I think for video games, that's gonna be the video game company or the virtual reality company that um, is creating that. Yeah, and I, I would think that some of these video game companies have less of, a, uh, of an agenda. I, it, it seems to me as though the, the pure enjoyment of the game is, is first and foremost, and there isn't their presentation of history might not be tinged with the same maybe ideological or political view that maybe a university with which maybe a university professor for instance might might tint his presentation or her presentation of the information so it might actually be more a more disinterested um look into history in that way i'm not sure i mean of course everyone is is kind of motivated in some way or another but that's I'm not sure that we'd get, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Mm -mm. Um, I'm not sure that it'd be a more disinterested view, but it would definitely be, 
I think one that is um, willfully or unwillfully willing to not do the required um, research to make sure that everything's showing correct. Uh, one of the big things that we're seeing more and more is kind of the monopolization of information with Wikipedia. Um, Wikipedia is a great source. It was one of the most amazing things that's ever happened to humankind um, because it it's an encyclopedia that's free and open and available and millions, well, I don't know, millions, thousands at least of experts have weighed in on some pretty important topics. Um, but if say somebody's not doing their um, required reading or their legwork, if they say, you know, we, we're just gonna kind of skim over this one because of time, um, you know, there's nothing stopping people on, you know, you might see it on say smaller channels or podcasts in particular, but on even a video game from saying, you know, we're just gonna, we're just gonna copy over Wikipedia, mm -hmm. which again, those authors have their own points of view. Um, even if they're not trying to be malicious about it, they can get information wrong. They can get kind of tone wrong, or they can present things in a manner that's not factual, or even they didn't do their legwork. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to get information from somebody else who maybe is using a bad source. Maybe they're using a source that was written in a certain way. And this kind of goes beyond history a little bit. Um, but if it would go in a certain way that um, would misrepresent facts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that Wikipedia, though an, though an excellent site, and in many ways, uh, 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 hmm. An earth-shakingly um, important site. <laughs> I think we we fail to recognize just how amazing it is uh, that we can have at our fingertips this wealth of information, um, supposedly for free, even though they seem to be soliciting <laughs> donations or contributions every every few months. Um, oh well, you, I don't pay those, man. Are you kidding? No, me? no, no, no. They're getting a red dime off of me. They're never gonna. You know. <laughs> nor me um but it is important to note that a site like that is is malleable is corruptible and can be ideologically captured i mean you've seen this happen with well you just you you plug in the name of a, a you know a, a figure let's say to whom the establishment might be somewhat averse let's take a like a ben shapiro type figure a political commentator and you read an entry on him or someone like him, uh, particularly usually on the right side of the political spectrum, and and you can tell that there's there's some either latent or open hostility. So, any of these human, uh, any of these companies, especially these internet companies that are under the control of humans, are are irreducibly fallible in in some way or another. But maybe that's a Maybe that's a hole not worth uh, diving into. I want to ask you about your documentary style. So that is not an easy, not an easy genre to to get into. So tell me a little bit about your approach to to making your content in this documentary style. Yeah. Um... Sorry. Uh, yeah. So I would say that I really want to provide it in an interesting way. That's that's my goal first and foremost, is to keep people interested, keep people um, wanting to learn more, and really, I guess, wanting to um, wanting to keep learning. You know, people want to learn. People go out of their way to learn. Um, I think that's no small part why we have so much, I would say it's art, why we documentaries are their own film genre. I think that's no small reason why nonfiction works, why biographies um, have flourished. People have a desire and a drive to learn more and to um, kind of find out about the world. So let, let me ask, were there any documentaries by which you were inspired, maybe when you were younger, did you see uh, a Ken Burns film, for instance? And, and oh, think, wow. Ken Burns is the man. I tried to do. I tried to do some Ken Burns. 
uh, a little bit. I'm not that good at it. Um, a Civil War documentary is obviously one of the best that's ever been done, period. End of story. Um, although I would say that I did watch a lot of Ancient Aliens when I was a kid. <laughs> so uh, it was it was definitely a lot of, um, I don't know, let's learn about World War II. Let's wa learn about um, Rome. I know one of my favorite documentary pieces that I will never get to do is called uh, The World at War. It's about World War II, and it was done in, like, 1977. And uh, it's, like, 26 parts. It's in mostly black and white, um, with the exception of a couple interviews. And it is the most comprehensive source of firsthand accounts about the war that I have ever seen in my life. Um, I mean, they had, like, uh, the guy who masterminded Pearl Harbor on there and I was asking him all kinds of questions. They had aides to Hitler and all these different people. It was so intensive and it was so, um, so well done, so well produced that I don't think we'll ever get any sort of uh, piece like that again. And the name of it was? I believe, it was the, I believe it's the World at War. Um, it's 26 parts and most of those parts are available on YouTube. They're about an hour a piece, and they cover a different section of the war each time. Probably one of the most fascinating parts about it was actually the first episode where they are talking about the rise of Hitler in Germany. And they sit down, a bunch of these people who were like young in like 20s and 30s when Hitler rose to power. And they're like, you know, why did you why did you support him? And he was and the, the people were like, he offered jobs and food and we didn't have either one of those things. And it was, and in no, uh, in no insignificant way, delivered on on those things. I'm not extolling his political program, but um, oh, yeah, I'm not either. Raised, filled, filled a void that was that was left by the by the uh, his predecessors in the Weimar Republic. Yeah, uh, Germany at the time. I mean, there was a worldwide depression going on, and Germany was hit even harder because of the failure on or because of their loss of the First World War. Um, but I think it was just so fascinating that they were able to take human beings and put them through this lens of these are just people, you know, in a way that really feels almost ahead of its time. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's something of which we are completely um, insensitive, something to which we're completely insensitive today. Looking back, and you you castigate people from the past, and we see this. I mean, not just in uh, in Nazi Germany. That's an easy example uh, on which to leap. Uh, but uh, you you look at slaveholding founding fathers of our country, or you look at oh um, co colonialist or imperialistic uh, Europeans of the mid nineteenth century, uh, and and we rightly judge them for their moral shortcomings <laughs> but you have to remember that we are all part of a, a single human race we are all the same species um, liable to make the same mistakes and you know there's there's this certain smugness about our current population i don't mean americans specifically i just mean in general the smugness that we won't be judged by those who are watching our documentaries 50 years a century two centuries hence do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the moral superiority is insane. Uh, you, you, you can see it a lot, I think, more online. And I don't know if that's just because the smuggest people are the loudest and that gives them the most, uh, the biggest audience. Um, do I don't think, know. I think, do, you think an an, do you think an antidote to that smugness uh, and that, uh, that preening moral superiority uh, do you think an antidote is maybe the study of history, watching videos like yours, reading primary sources, and things of that nature? I don't think it's history. I think it's an empathy. I think that people need to garner empathy more so for one another and then focus on the small ways in which they affect the world and which the world is affected rather than looking at the big overarching things that they have no control over. Um, I don't have control over what bills get passed in the Senate. So there's only so much uh, emotion 
that I'm willing to push towards that regardless of the outcome. Um, I can be as angry as I want to. I can try to do a whole bunch of stuff. And I, I, I do, uh, you know, like volunteer work in my personal time. Um, not trying to brag or anything, but I'm trying to really just focus on those things that are maintained. It's, your, it's, a, it's a consequence of your Jewish upbringing. You're, oh, you're, something <laughs> like that. Um, I went to Catholic school, so. <laughs> um, you know, I, I really, I really think that uh, it's less about you need to learn more about history because I think a lot of these smug people do know a lot about history. Um, I think that they're smug because they believe undoubtedly that they are right um, and their ways are the best. Or they're just narcissistic, you know, people who there's nothing you can do for them. And there's some people who are just like that. Yeah, and sometimes those two circles uh, overlap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like that idea of a, like a trans-historical sympathy, like this interconnectedness, not only with those uh, by whom you're surrounded right now, but those by whom you were preceded, your predecessors, your forebears. And there's something very kind of conservative and traditional, Burkean in that regard, thinking not only of yourself in your current moment and being completely consumed by, um, by those narcissistic impulses, but really having a due regard for, for everyone. And knowing that you don't have all the answers and that you should, um, that you should be patient I think uh, with those who are dead and those who are, who are yet born. Yeah. And I think that it's, I'm going to say that I think that it's perfectly fair to, to um, kind of judge the people in the past. Um, sometimes and I say sometimes um, based upon the principles of today, because I think many of the principles that we've held today have been held for quite a long time. Um, even at points in the past, if we were to go down a listing of uh, what people in any given area consider to be right or wrong, um, then I think that we get a lot of answers that are somewhat similar today, some that are way off, obviously. Um, but I, I think that empathy and kindness are at the basis of a lot of the, I guess, well, no, that's forget I said that last bit. <laughs> I can't. It was so compelling. Keep going. I was, I was going to say that I'm, it, I'm tickled by this. I, I think that the reason that we judge a lot of people in the past is because um, we look at something that somebody did and we say, well, that is wrong. You know, you shouldn't have done that. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about somebody 200, 300 years ago. I think a lot of people at the time were also going, this is wrong and we shouldn't do it. You know? Um, yeah. So you think that there were some uh, amongst many of the people, a recognition of the the iniquity or the wrongness of what they were doing, or or the the acts of which maybe they were supportive, but not necessarily in which they were participating. Yeah, um, I mean, let's pull out an example for of slavery. You know, um, I think that's a big one that people talk about a lot. Um, I don't think that we would have had in the United States a civil war if people didn't think slavery was wrong. We wouldn't have had abolitionism going back um, to the beginning of slavery in the Spanish Empire. Um, I know there was a lot of back and forth between uh, De La Casas and I can't remember the other individual's name, but it was this idea that that what was being done, whether it be through imperialism or through slavery or through some other process, was wrong. Um, both. I always I, I always mispronounce it, but it was the the Valladolid debate <laughs> oh okay yeah de las casas was the was the christian kind of missionary spanish i don't know emissary he he went to the west indies he went to the caribbean and, and was quite appalled by what he saw so yeah he brought back that that sort of moral recognition that yes this needs to end but of course i mean slavery is coeval with with humanity so it goes back a long yeah. time um but yeah, I mean, the the, for, the first impulse toward abolition was probably with him, and then gained force and gained gained momentum, albeit slowly and not mm -hmm. nearly as quickly as we would hope, um, until 
you know, the, the late 18th century, especially in England and then in America. But I just finished reading all the writings of George Washington, and, and that's why I'm, you, make a, you make a point to which I, I resonate. Uh, he, of course, owned many slaves, uh, inherited many slaves upon the death of his, of his uh, in-laws, uh, but spoke uh, intermittently, I would say, in his letters about his desire, his ardent desire to emancipate these slaves of his, particularly. Um, he wanted to do it gradually. He wanted to do it slowly. And this is the same form of uh, emancipation uh, of which Abraham Lincoln was a champion. So we, we can go out and we can knock down the Washington monuments and we can try to rename Washington and Lee University. At least the league part is somewhat justifiable, I suppose, but the Washington part less so. But without knowing his thoughts, without knowing his heart, and without having that empathy and kindness to which you spoke, you're you're losing so much of the picture. You're seeing it very narrowly, and again, through this very modern lens. He's talking with, with the Marquis de Lafayette in G, 1790 about his wish uh, to 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 abolish slavery universally and his support of Lafayette's desire to do so in the in the land that he was about to become the proprietor of. His, in his last will and testament, he talks at length about uh, how his slaves are to be emancipated, then treated, how they're to be brought up if they're uh, of not quite of mature age and, and educated and brought into what he calls useful occupations and employment and uh, educated and, and made literate. Jefferson was similar. I mean, he didn't emancipate his slaves at the end uh, to his discredit. But similarly, and, and even more so, throughout the course of his writings, he's, he's continually returning to this theme of slavery and, and the moral injustice. And it's part of the, part of the irony and the tragedy of history is it's, it's especially a figure like him, it's his inability to reconcile that, to, to attain the the ideals that he set up uh, to fall so short of them. Uh, now, is that deserving of everlasting reprobation? Again, it goes back to your your idea of transhistorical sympathy. I think that's that's brilliant. I really, uh, I really think that's that's useful if that can be instilled. So, I know I, I rambled on a little bit there, so I apologize. But I want to yeah. ask you. I actually yeah. just like to jump in there. So please, I'm not please. trying to suggest that we should knock down the Washington Monument, that we should um, completely destroy all of the founding fathers because um, they own slaves. What I'm suggesting is more of, we have to acknowledge the empathy, not just for people like Washington who wanted to free the slaves, but um, didn't chose to not, free his own slaves during his lifetime, but also for those slaves themselves um, and the recognition that they were human beings. Um, I don't think there would have been an underground railroad if uh, slavery was kind. Um, and I don't think that, uh, I, I would say even if you look at the little things, one of the things that Martha Washington was famous for were all of her recipes. Um, I don't think that a rich, arguably equivalent of like a noble lady or the rich aristocracy in the um, late 1700s did a lot of cooking. She had other people cook for her. Um, notably, I think uh, one of the only pictures we have of a chef hat, and this is a little bit of a ramble, but one of the only pictures we have of chef hats, or one of the earliest was actually from the uh, private personal chef of Martha and George Washington, who probably wrote a lot of the recipes in her books. I think it's I think we need to to acknowledge that well yes there was a lot of good things that happened there was a lot of great things that happened um and these individuals were absolutely pivotal in founding our current modern society we have to acknowledge that these people um owned people and I'm just using slavery as an example here um uh, but we have to acknowledge that there were other things done to human beings and that those human beings were just as uh, deserving of empathy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's a, that's an excellent point that you make and one worth repeating. It's easy to, to extend your sympathy if you're so inclined to a figure like Jefferson, to a figure like 
like Washington uh, to anybody of that sort because they are they're famous they're they're notable uh, we have their images on our dollar bills if we even use dollar bills or or, or paper money anymore um, you know we 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 name our universities after them we name our streets after them you <laughs> probably name our schools after them um, public schools and universities and all the all the like but you're right there there are also the unnamed faceless masses to whom we should also extend that sympathy and i think i don't know if you're a practicing catholic now and you don't have to disclose that but you you speak to a to a very noble virtuous almost christian um approach to your fellow human being so whether or not that's in, inspired by and rooted in your christianity or the christianity in which you grew up uh, i think that's something uh, that could be of great benefit to, to to a very harsh modern audience is having that sort of Christian outreach, that outlook to to those who came before us, not just the prominent people at whom it's easy to look, but but all individuals, right? Touched by the same spark of divinity, if you believe in that sort of thing. Maybe you can speak to that just for a moment. Yeah, so I'm not religious at all, um, but I would definitely say that when when you're when you're looking at people you need to take into account that they're all they're all people um and yeah maybe the brain chemistry is different um you can look at serial killers and you can definitely say like maybe there's something like really different about that person or you can take a look at somebody who has um say autism or adhd or something like that and say there's definitely something different with the brain chemistry but you have to remember that at the end of the day um all those people regardless of their position um regardless of the separation based upon class or caste or legal status um or any of that they're they're all human beings you know and you need to you need to take that into account when um kind of uh trying to in my case trying to go in the history um and you have to remember that even extending that civilizations are made of people yeah, when you reduce it all down, <laughs> there is a shared humanity uh, at the bedrock. So, so moving from the the religious and the slightly uh, metaphysical, <laughs> let me ask you about uh, the subjects uh, about which you talk on your channel. Now, for those of you who are unacquainted with your channel, and I'm sure they won't be for long, you have an eclectic collection. Uh, you have videos dealing with writing i'm just reading them right now buddy holly mortal combat of which we made mention earlier space force history rebecca raccoon uh, so tell me how do you choose these diverse themes how do they come to you where are you finding the inspiration to cover these particular topics yeah so it's kind of just whatever i i, I find interest in um, at the time, either something will come up or I'll see something and I'll be like, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. Um, I'll definitely say my videos have gotten better, uh, much better because I've actually spent more time on them. But uh, it's definitely just kind of whatever whatever interests me at the time. And I think that that's one of the, uh, the main benefits of being as I can consider myself online a general historian is that I, I can kind of talk about anything. Um, as long as I can make it interesting. Uh, what I'm doing right now is is the writing throughout history and it's uh, talking about more of clay tablets and paper rather than uh, famous writers. And uh, I didn't realize there was so much. I was just originally gonna talk about people use clay tablets and now they write on paper. And now it's like, oh, my, there's just so many different things that people have used. But tell um, me, how how is it that that specific idea about writing through history how did that come about i have you, no idea that's yeah. that was months ago at this point that is out of my mind <laughs> um i think i just i kind of just play around with it and wait until something kind of pops up the one that i've been playing around with and the one i'd like to do with after writing is the history of tourism um in 
I guess, yeah, as we jump into this a little bit deeper, maybe we can maybe we try to work our way backwards. I, I really want to start with something interesting, historical that a lot of people can either relate to or kind of be interested in and then expand that out, ask bigger questions and kind of see, like, how far can we take this back? You know, um, essentially, how far how long ago uh, did people do things that we could recognize today as kind of the same thing? or going in a similar vein. Um, and like with tourism, you know, let's start with Disney World and let's talk about Disney World and like how it's the number one most viewed theme park in the world. I guess how far back could we go that people went to um, something like a vacation? How long ago yeah, did people go on vacation? Would, yeah, I suppose you would have to define tourism because it was something of a rite of passage in the amongst the english elite in the in the 18th and 17th century and probably before that as well to go on on the grand tour the grand tour yeah that's, that's of one of the them continent. so so uh, you know you you hear of like lord byron if you're going to read George yeah. Morton, you can read the read the romantics or you read about it you know anybody milton anyone really um they would depart at a certain age maybe maybe 18, 19, usually when they were at, toward the conclusion of the university studies, and they would take the grand tour. They would go to Switzerland, they would go to France, they would go down the Alps, they would go into Italy and see all the, the classical structures and Greece. And uh, so we, I don't know if that would qualify as tourism. Maybe it would, but then going back even further, oh my goodness. Well, I would. I know one of the things that it went back to at least the Roman Empire, um, and we know that because. Um, so I'm gonna try to keep this as short as possible. Two minutes. You can time me right now. Uh, so you had the pyramids, great big things. Pharaohs were put in the pyramids. Uh, eventually, they got sick of the pyramids. They're like, this is too much. There's just like a lot of money being spent on them. Uh, nobody wants to get buried in the pyramids, and and they kept getting broken into. Because, you know, you put this great big thing out there, somebody's going to break into it. So they find a, a, a hidden area, you know, a secret graveyard. And that is the Valley of the Kings. Valley of the Kings happens like a thousand years after the pyramids. And then they do that for like another thousand years. They're burying pharaohs in this guarded secret um, graveyard out, outside of uh, one of the great cities of Egypt. So then they stop doing that too. I don't remember why. I think it was the Bronze Age, age collapse or something. I don't remember. That's not important right now. What you have happen is the Roman Empire goes and takes over Egypt like a thousand years after that. Romans come. They stop by Egypt. You know, they come to visit. They take a look at the pyramids. They go, wow, those are really big. And then they go to the, um, the Valley of the Kings and they carve graffiti onto the walls saying like so-and-so is here at this date on his uh, travels. So I think that really that is kind of some of the first examples that you might even point to of tourism. Huh. Very interesting. I'm just trying to picture Tiberius loves um, uh, catalyst on, a, on, a, <laughs> on, a, on an Egyptian stone. You, you need to take a look at Pompey's graffiti. It's, it's pretty dirty. It's some pretty dirty stuff. Pompey was was notorious for that. Oh yeah, for the ribald for the ribald nature of its graffiti. <laughs> my favorite. My, this is a tangent. My favorite piece of graffiti ever was at the uh, in the Hagia Sophia. This great big. Um, it's currently a mosque in Istanbul. Um, up on the roof, the ceiling of it, like two hundred feet up, there was some scribbling, and and people would see it there for hundreds of years, and they were like, wow, like who knows? We must have done that. Maybe somebody was carried up by the angels. They eventually get a team of archaeologists out there to decipher it. They find out it was old Viking runes that said Haftan was here. Um, a Viking climbed up the inside of the dome and carved it out, probably as a dare from his buddies. Some things never change. There's there's a there's an inextinguishable fire, as probably especially in young men, to to mark their <laughs> their menial presences yeah. anywhere they go. And so now it's bathroom stalls, and back then it's the 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 ceiling of one of the grandest, well, yeah, cathedrals now mosques in in all the world. That Why would actually not? that would be an in a really interesting episode if you were to do that. Like, go from your writing through history, and then into a survey of graffiti through history. Probably you know, just thinking about 
Yeah, like the, the even the etymology, like what does I'm sure it's an Italian word, graffito, probably is graffiti is probably hmm. important. What does that even mean? And then like kind of delve into that and the, the the funniest or the most scandalous or the most scatological forms of graffiti everywhere in the world. That <laughs> I I think that would gather some viewership. I'd have to do I have to do a little bit of traveling for that one. Find some actual graffiti first. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now let me ask you because. Uh, this is something that I plan to do, but haven't really. And I'm, you know, a, a great lover of history myself, but I haven't really traveled much, certainly not internationally. So let me ask you, as a lover of history and a student and now a, a, a content creator um, in that subject matter, are you well, <laughs> I hate to use the word, but are you well traveled outside America? Um, or is that, if not, is that something that you'd like to do more of? Would you like to travel more? So I have traveled a fair amount outside the United States. I'd like to travel more. Um, it's just not in the books right now. You know, that just happens sometimes. Um, I've been to Spain twice. I've been to France twice, twice, Germany once. Um, I went to the UK, up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival once, which was super awesome. It was like a great big arts festival um, in this in the city of Edinburgh. Uh, I did a year in the military when I was in Turkey, um, but we couldn't leave the base, so I don't really count that. Um, yeah, I'd have to say my coolest one would be going to Spain and then having an impromptu castle um, tour, like essentially a grand tour of castles, um, where we were just, I was with my mom and my brother, we were driving along. Actually, just a castle out there, just on the side of the road. And we said, let's go to the castle. It was completely abandoned. And there was this little, um, like, tourism board out front that you might see it like a, like one of those scenic sites when you're driving along. And it just said, this is one of the six great castles of, you know, this region. And it gave a listing of the other five. <laughs> so we drove around to all the different ones. Only one had, like, an actual tour going on. Um, so it was either that or again with a castle in the south of France, there's a project where they're rebuilding a castle by hand, um, in 13th century style. And I think I might've mentioned this to you, uh, during one of our previous conversations, but I actually managed to go there and kind of see firsthand how a lot of these things were done. And they're almost finished with the thing at this point. Um, I would love to, at some point probably in the far future at this point, um, go and spend a season being a stonemason there, just hauling, hauling concrete. You say that now until you have a, a massive stone on your back and you're walking uphill like a Sisyphus. Oh, they don't carry it on the back. It's, it's all about the arms. You got you to gotta work with the legs. <laughs> well, you start, start your training now. Uh, oh. you'll, you'll be ready for, for that, for your masonry project. I used to uh, I used to have a workout where I only did squats at at as much weight as I could, and let me tell you, uh, that works. That works. Yeah, it's twenty minutes. It's twenty minutes. You do twenty squats at like three hundred pounds. So that's the done by the end. That's the proper pop historian's workout protocol. Proper Just pop historian. Squat, squat until you drop. <laughs> no, don't drop. You'll die. <laughs> but uh, squat until exhaustion. Just pure squats because historians, you know, you need to have a very strong lower lower body, as as is well known. You build the lower body, the upper body that works too. You got to carry all those heavy books. You lift with your legs. <laughs> so speaking of that, tell me, tell me some or any of the books that you found particularly interesting uh, this year. They could be historical or, or works of fiction. What are you reading that maybe some of the some of the listeners might be able to might be able to get their hands on? Uh, probably one of my favorite things to look deeper into isn't historical related at all, but speculative biology. Um, it's the idea where you take the evolutionary um, clock and kind of turn it like a million years in the future or 10 million years. Um, one of the best ones that I've read this year is actually a piece called um, All Tomorrows. Um, and it's not, I guess, what you would consider your typical sort of uh, book. It was done by an artist who wanted to kind of explore what human beings would look like in 100 million years um, if they were taken and put on different planets. Uh, I think it's just kind of a fascinating case study. 
into um, the far future, you know, past um, what we could hope to normally imagine on Earth for the future. Yeah, so your your taste truly is eclectic. So you're interested in uh, not only the the castles of of probably Roman or, or medieval Spain, medieval Spain, uh, but the far future and and what sounds to be like somewhat science fiction. Perhaps. Love me some science fiction. Science fiction is great. And give us a few recommendations of other science fiction works because that's a genre uh, with which I'm completely unacquainted. Good science fiction. Oh gosh, Children of Men was really good. It's about 2006. It's um, children can't be born anymore, and it kind of takes that and spins the clock forward and, and asks a lot of questions about like what if like this actually happened, what would kind of society look like? That's a, I wouldn't say harder science fiction. Um, man, good science fiction. I don't know. I haven't seen a lot in a while. I gotta, I gotta take a look at some of my favorites and get back to you on that one. Yeah. I just think it's fascinating that you have this diversity of interests and you can, <laughs> I, I, I love the fact that you have, um, your your science fiction mind and your video game mind and your uh, your traveling mind and your uh, your history your proper history mind sort of all converging and making this wonderful tapestry of of content and of material uh, again to which I'll I'll create a link below um, so maybe just in closing. For people who are interested in making content of their own, right? Because you know your channel is in its in its infancy. <laughs> My channel is in its infancy. Um, talk to me a little and talk to us a little bit about the process of 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 trying something new, trying something different like this, putting your your content out there, and perhaps receiving a, a good review. I guess which would be. <laughs> um, Identifiable by identifiable by your view count or what have you, your number of likes, or perhaps being reviewed poorly by having very few counts and that feeling kind of demoralizing because you put a lot of effort into it. So just talk to me a little bit about that that process as a as a younger <laughs> YouTuber in this space where there's so much content and so much, if you look at it this way, competition. I don't know what you mean by younger because I'm 57. No, I'm just kidding. I'm in my I'm in my mid twenties. Don't even worry about it. Um, so I'd say the the first thing would definitely be understanding, and this was a this was a massive process for me. Understanding that these things are not going to get done all at once. You need to you need to put aside several sessions to get anything of this nature done that's longer than say a minute. Um, I th I think really you have to find what you enjoy what you're really passionate about and something that you can in the end look up and research for more than just a little bit um there's no problems and I'm, i don't want to discourage anybody from making say four episodes about um you know the dilbert comics from the sunday newspaper um i i encourage you to i don't think you can do a hundred <laughs> episodes on that but do do what you love um and really understand that this is a, this is going to be a process if you really want to get something that you're proud of in the end. Um, and then to kind of accept feedback and most importantly to be self-critical, but understand when it's time when it's time to submit, when it's time to just press that button and go. That's all I'm going to be able to do right now. I think that's been one of the the biggest things for me because um, my so my first video, I was super worried about like the reception. What what's it going to be like, and you know, um, what's going to happen as a result. And I kind of watch it now. And there's just like this grating um, music at the beginning, and it's just not fitting it tonally. Um, and I, I'm I'm able to be a lot more critical of it now and say, well, I put in a lot of effort, but I definitely um, needed to change this, 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 and this. There's a, 
yeah, there's a certain cringe-inducing beauty uh, about those early videos. Yeah, <laughs> but at, at which you look. Yeah, I the same thing happens to me, and and I'm still in that cringy uh, early stage where everything yeah. just feels uncomfortable to watch back. Um, me too. But, yeah, but but I think you make some excellent points. Above all, regardless of viewership of sponsorship or whatever it is, whatever, however you um, qualify success, you just need to be passionate about it. I mean, it's a cliche to say that, but you simply need to find it enjoyable. It might not be your primary source of income. It might not be your secondary source of income. It might just be a side project to which you devote some of your Saturday energies, and that's fine, but it has to be gratifying to you. So uh, the way in which I'm structuring my channel, and, and not that, I mean, the focus today is on you, but I'll just... Oh, no, yeah, I, I'm curious to hear. Yeah, so I really just want to have conversations. I just want to probe some minds. I want to uh, broaden my appreciation of what other people are thinking in this space because there's never been a point in our existence as a species that so many people have been um, capable of reaching so, uh, you know, the way in which we met was was kind of a, just a random one. And you can do that with thousands, if not millions of people and, and discover in these masses just a wealth of information. Like from you, I've learned so much already, uh, all these notes that I've written down and which I'll share with all my viewers. And I, I just think it's such a ripe, fertile time for the interchange of ideas. And through that, to get back to your earlier point, uh, a broadening of that sympathy, of that empathy, of that kindness, and a sort of a, an interconnection that can be forged by this ability to talk and just simply hear an idea, dedicate an hour to a conversation, and really get to know somebody's soul in a certain extent, at least not, not to its deepest depths, but, but to get to know somebody beyond the very most superficial 120 character tweet that he or she is sending out. So, so that's been my approach. So for me, it's always gratifying, even if a video gets 20 views, if it was a conversation with someone, if I were um, connecting with someone and touching someone in a, as intimate a way as is possible on, in, a, in a Google Meet or in a Zoom session, to me, that's worthwhile. Yeah, I definitely feel that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like doing the podcast so much is that you get to actually sit down and have that that sort of conversation with somebody and, and kind of uh, uh, reach out in a way that you don't normally get to have those conversations. I mean, there's so much small talk in life. Um, and I think it's a nice change of pace to kind of do something else. You know? Yeah, you think about how often in the course of a work day, say, you 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 have the same conversation with the yeah. same people, whether it's just the the niceties or the or the salutation or the departure. Uh, you know, it's 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 very redundant, which is fine. I mean, if you need to function in a certain way. Yeah. you're not always going to have deep conversations about um, Egyptian relics and George Washington's slaves, but the ability to reach out across the internet and do that on occasion or more frequently, I think, is just is just mm -hmm. fantastic. And I'm I'm so thankful for the the modest opportunity that I have to do that. Uh, so I think on that happy note, we'll we'll come to our conclusion. Uh, let me ask you: Do you have any any parting thoughts or anything that you'd like to convey to our humble audiences? Yeah, it's just been a fascinating conversation. I've been loved to be a part of it. Um, if you ever want me on again, feel free to let me know. Uh, for the audience, I'd say definitely find those things that are your passion. And even if you're not putting it out there, even if you have no intention of uh, ever kind of telling anybody about it, just just do it. Just do it for yourself. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, making something and then destroying it afterwards. Um, I used to do uh, a lot of ceramics back when I was in college. And that would be the thing is I would make the same cup like 30 or 40 times and then cut it in half to see what I'm doing wrong every single time. I don't think there's any shame in that. I don't think there's any shame in, uh, you know, knitting a scarf and then burning it afterwards. 
and then eventually coming to such a point of expertise that you can make a Passover Seder dish and bring, yeah. it, and bring it to oh. your adopted Jewish family. You'll have to come yeah. over to my to my family next year or in the springtime. And Dude, we'll host, we'll too host. much too much pressure on me. I got to show up. I got to travel down there, Florida and all that stuff. Oh, my God. Uh, and you'll have to mumble a few prayers, too, in Hebrew. Oh. Uh, I can I can pretend I can pretend. Yeah, yeah you'll get through it. You'll get through it. So uh, in 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 uh, all um, seriousness, no, I echo everything that you say. And this was such a fruitful and and interesting conversation. And I would love to to have another one with you at some point in the near future and discuss some of your some of your upcoming projects. Um, so I'll include links to your your social information, your YouTube page in the notes below. I'll include a, a timestamp so you'll be able to jump to a particularly interesting area um, about which you want to learn a little bit more. And with that, uh, I thank you. This is Daniel Finneran with The Pop Historian, and we are signing off and wishing you a very lovely and happy evening. Thank you. Shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a 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 shout, Daniel.